0: Our Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the Psalms, Psalm 23, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading the entire psalm this morning. The word of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The new covenant reading is taken from the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22, we'll be reading through verse... 36 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. I simply remind you the previous portion of God's word that we looked at last week was Jesus miraculously feeding several thousand people with just a few small fish and a couple small loaves of bread. Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22, the word of our God. Immediately, He made the disciples get into the boat and go before them to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well." Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here. This will be the primary portion of God's word for this morning's sermon. What happens when our little faith encounters a broken and fallen world? Let's start with the world. Now, I don't mean to suggest by saying that the world is broken and fallen, that that's all that's true about the world That it's just one terrible thing after another. Uh, By the grace of God, there are many, many enjoyable blessings in this life. Uh, There is still beauty and friendship. Uh, There is delicious foods for us to enjoy. There are opportunities for us to learn things that just excite us and to be creative in a way that expresses God's intent for our lives, having created us in his own image. There is also kindness and steadfast love. In fact, just seeing some of your faces makes me smile. That's part of life. Nevertheless, this is a broken and fallen world. Because of our own rebellion and sinfulness against the Lord, there is also cancer and broken bones. There are broken relationships and people who treat us badly, for no apparent reason. Because of sin, we need to lock our homes and our cars. In fact, most of us carry a whole um, clip of keys in our wallets, I mean, in our pockets or in our purses, uh, precisely because this is a broken and fallen world. To make matters worse, we ourselves participate in the brokenness and fallenness of this world. Sometimes that brokenness can be rather minor. We can repair it simply by restarting our laptops or restarting our smartphones, and suddenly what was driving us crazy is now all gone. But some of those pains are so deep that we're going to carry them with us until the day we see Jesus face to face and he wipes away every tear from our eyes. Furthermore, as I say, we ourselves, even as Christians, continue to carry some of the consequences of humanity's fall into sin. We can become quickly and wrongly frustrated with someone that we care about. We can wound them deeply with our tongues and then find that we lack the power and the ability to heal the very wounds that we have inflicted. What happens when our little faith encounters a world like that. The world as it really is. Now, some of you may be objecting to describing our faith as a little faith. But Truth be told, uh, we do not live most of our Christian lives in mountaintop experiences. You know, like Elijah, who prays and calls down fire from heaven, and Almighty God sends fire from heaven. Uh, we do not live like Peter is this morning. He gets out of the boat... And at the word of Jesus, he walks on the water. That is not where we live most of our lives. And in fact, to the degree that God allows us to do those things, empowers us to do those things, to have that sort of faith, we very much are like Peter. We soon take our eyes off Jesus and begin to look at the storm. And like Peter, we too begin to sink. All of us are in fact people of little faith. and The good news is is that Jesus Christ is a magnificent and entirely sufficient Savior for people of little faith like you and me. We're going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, sweet hour of prayer. Second, glorious Savior. Third, Let me change that one, actually. I meant to say glorious Lord, and that might help you if you're taking notes. Second, glorious Lord. Third, compassionate Savior. And fourth, the one who sets the world to rights. I should say something about that last one because it's a rather long point. You don't normally take notes with a long thing like the one who sets the world to rights. I was very tempted to give you just two words, new creation. The problem is, is this passage is not about new creation. It's about the one who brings new creation about. The one who takes all our brokenness and sin, and as part of his own plan of redemption, restores the world to the way that it was always supposed to be. When we come to the end of this passage, and we see this comprehensive set of miracles that Jesus is doing, they are not intended primarily to point us to that which is being healed. They are to point us to Jesus Christ, the one who is setting the world to rights. Here is some profoundly good news for us this morning. Jesus has come not only to rescue us from the guilt of our sin, but also to deliver us from its power, and ultimately even from its effects and its presence. Let me give you those four headings once again. First, sweet hour of prayer, second, glorious Lord, third, compassionate Savior, and fourth, the one who sets the world to rights. We begin with the prayer life of our Lord, which I have titled, sweet hour of prayer. Uh, You'll recall that Jesus had been worn down by the incredible demands the crowds were putting on him in his ministry. And as we saw last week, he'd gotten his disciples together in a boat and headed across the Sea of Galilee precisely so that they could enjoy some R&R and also so that he could slip away from his disciples and enjoy a time of focused prayer with his Father in heaven. But even as they're getting out of the boat, the crowds had recognized Jesus, and they just come teeming out of the surrounding villages. And Jesus has compassion on the crowds. Um, He delays his plans. Note he does not give them up, but he delays his plans in order to minister to those in need. As we saw last week, one of the things that we need to learn is that to be like Jesus sometimes means giving up our plans in order to meet the needs of other people. Yet please mark this well. Instead of just giving up on his plans for a time of prayer with his father, Jesus now takes an extraordinary step in order to enjoy that extended time of prayer. Verses 22 and 23. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray right? Hours earlier, the disciples had urged Jesus to dismiss the crowds so that they could go buy some food and have something to eat. But Jesus said, there's no need to dismiss them. And then he performed this extraordinary miracle, and it would have taken quite a bit of time, right? But the disciples are distributing the food to thousands of people, and then they pick up the, the scraps that are left over in the baskets. It was already late before they got started. By now, it has gotten really late. And Jesus says, first of all, I'm going to separate myself from the disciples. The language here is actually very, very strong. He compelled them to get into a boat and to go to the other side of the lake without him. Then he dismisses the crowd, and then he goes up to a mountain by himself. See, it was so important to Jesus that he had this time of focused prayer with his father, but he was willing to take the extraordinary step of forcing his disciples to go across the lake without him. Well, the natural question for us is this. What keeps us from doing the same sort of thing as consistently as we should? Not in terms of sending people across the lake without us, but in being willing to cut other things out of our life so that we too enjoy focused times of prayer with our Father. For most of us, modern life is filled with a relentless busyness. Um, Ironically, we've invented all these devices that are so-called time-saving devices. They really are. It's a wonderful thing to be able to wash your clothes by throwing it in a machine and hitting some buttons rather than having to take it in a basket down to the river. It really does save us time. But it turns out that those devices are always with us, and so there's always the ability for people to get in touch with you with a message or a beep on the phone. There's always more to do. And so we find it hard, almost selfish for some of us. We feel that way. But it's selfish for me to say, I'm going to go take 30 minutes just to pray. right? When there's all this other stuff that's going on and people that want my attention. But I want you to see from Jesus' example that Jesus is teaching us is that, if, that we're too busy For focused times of prayer in our life, we are simply too busy. I mean, none of us has the demands on our lives that Jesus did. And Jesus was willing to take extraordinary steps to ensure that he had these times. By the way, this was not an everyday thing with Jesus. When you read through the Gospels, you see how his life was busy from beginning to end. But he realized he needed to take breaks from those to be alone with his Father. And we need that as well. Our Lord's example should inspire us to be more intentional about cutting out some of those things which are urgent, but not particularly important, in order to have time for that, which is of ultimate importance, which is to build and nourish our relationship with the living God. So Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray... And it seems that he engaged in prayer for an extended period of time. Then, when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. It's helpful for us to realize that Jesus not only was intentional about getting alone to pray, he was intentional about the disciples going across the sea by themselves. I mean, after all, he could have said, just wait here down at the bottom of the mountain and I'll come and see you in a couple hours. Jesus is the one who planned on his disciples being out in the sea while these waves and the wind are battering the boat precisely so he could reveal himself to them in a remarkable way. Right? Jesus is preparing his disciples for a remarkable revelation about who he truly is. And what Jesus does next is to reveal himself, not simply as a good teacher and as a man, but as the Son of God. I've titled this section, Glorious Lord. Look at verses 25 through 27 with me. Verses 25 through 27. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now the fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., right? This, this night is really far gone already. For the disciples, it had been a very long day. Um so we already reminded ourselves, Jesus had brought the disciples with him across the sea uh, in order to get some R&R. We don't know if they had some while Jesus was teaching and, and healing people, but they'd been up all night, presumably, and now they're out in the Sea of Galilee between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning. And, and, regrettably, it's not an easy trip. The wind is against them. The waves are battering the boat. Now, they're not afraid of the sea. That's important to get here. Uh, in, back in chapter 8, we had another example when Jesus was with them in the boat and the waves are actually swamping the boat, and they became scared of the storm. But these are experienced sailors, right? They're not scared. And, in fact, they're making quite a bit of progress. Uh, John tells us that they're about three to three and a half miles out into the lake. That is, they're in the middle of the lake. Nevertheless, while they're in the middle of the lake working hard to get across the lake in this uh, minor storm, something utterly astonishing happens. They look out the stern of the boat and they see what looks like a man walking upon the sea. Now, this is one of those places where it's easy to pick on the disciples if you're not very realistic, you know. Well, what are they so afraid of? Beloved, if you were out in the Sea of Galilee at 4 o'clock in the morning and you were just watching where you're going by the stars or by the moon that was out, and you saw someone that looks like a human being walking on the waves, you would have been scared out of your minds, right? I mean, just being honest, my response would have been much more uh, cowardly, if I can say that, than theirs was. And please note, Jesus does not rebuke them for their reaction. Right? Jesus does not rebuke them for being scared seeing him walk on the water, because he's actually displaying himself in his awesome nature as God. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, the threefold reaction by the disciples is met with a threefold response of encouragement from Jesus. First, the disciples are troubled. Second, they say, it is a ghost. And third, they cry out from fear. Jesus does not wait. He does not delay. He replies immediately with a threefold comfort for his troubled disciples. Because they are troubled, Jesus calms them with his invitation, take heart. By the way, this this expression almost everywhere else in the New Testament is be of good cheer. It's not simply... Be courageous here. Jesus is saying you ought to be happy. Right? Cheer up. I am with you. Because they don't recognize who he is, Jesus responds simply and absolutely. But this actually has overtones of our Lord's own speech. It is I. Now in John, this expression, um, I am, is regularly used as a term that says, I am Yahweh going back to Exodus chapter 3. It's not entirely clear if that's what's in view here, but in the broader context, Jesus is making a claim more than simply, you know who I am, right? and and I'm back with you. He's saying, because I am with you and because of who I am, you ought to be of good cheer. Because they have cried out from fear, Jesus speaks assuring words, stop being afraid. At the heart of our Lord's response is that his disciples should be comforted by his own person and his presence. And I simply remind you, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the Jesus who says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You ought to take comfort from his presence as well. But as I've already asked, if Jesus only wanted his disciples to enjoy peace, why didn't he have them wait in the boat so that they could cross the lake together? Do, do you get that question? Right? Like, Jesus has them get scared and then he brings them peace by his presence. Why not just cut out that intermediate step? Say, wait on the bottom of the, the, the mountain. We'll cross over together. I'll be with you to comfort you. You'll have no need to become afraid. And I think the answer can be found in the words of The most beloved hymn of all time. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. See, the peace the disciples would know on the other side of their fear would be much deeper than the peace they knew before it. They would come to know Jesus in a new and deeper way. They would come to worship him as their God. Who but God could walk on the stormy waters? As Job 9, verse 8 puts it, the Lord alone stretched out the heavens and trampled upon the waves of the sea. See, connect the miracles that we looked at last week with this week. When Jesus fed the crowds, he was not in the position of Moses receiving manna coming down from heaven. When Jesus fed the crowds, he was in the place of Almighty God, Giving the manna from heaven. And when Jesus walks across the waves, he's demonstrating his lordship, his mastery over the seas. After all, he had created them and everything that is in them. As Davies and Allison put it, the powers of deity have become incarnate in God's Son. And mark this well, not perfectly, but at least partially. The disciples get it. The disciples get what Jesus is doing for them and revealing to them. Skip down with me to verses 32 and 33. Verses 32 and 33. And when they got into the boat, that's Peter and Jesus, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, we should not imagine the disciples were ready to recite the Nicene Creed, right? They're not there in the boat going, Oh, this is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father. Uh, That sort of theological position would take a great deal of time, and they wouldn't really fully grasp that until after Jesus was raised from the dead. But already in part, because of the astonishing thing Jesus is revealing to them by walking upon the seas, commonly, by the way, while they were... Struggling with the waves, they were beginning to grasp that he was in a category all by himself, not merely the greatest man who already lived, uh, who had ever lived. He was in a category different from us. In fact, they did something that faithful Jews would only do for God. They worshipped him. And they worshiped him by saying, "Truly, you are the Son of God." Here's a profound comfort for all of us with a little faith in a fallen and broken world. We serve a glorious Lord who will never leave us nor forsake us. Beloved, we may tremble upon the rock, but the rock of our salvation never shakes under our feet. God is good. God is steadfast. And on him we will never be moved. Thankfully, interwoven with the truth that we serve a glorious Lord is a truth that the God of glory is also a compassionate Savior. Look back up to verse 28 and following with me. Jesus has called his disciples to cheer up because he was now with them. Verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, Christians, for some reason, or at least the Christians in my experience, I only have a small sampling, but in my experience, Christians like to laugh at Peter. Uh, I hope we're laughing with him and not merely at him. Uh, After all, Peter did something really extraordinary that night. At the word of Jesus, he stepped out into the waves, and he walked on water. Peter is not an example of someone who doesn't get it as well as we do. He's an example of a true disciple. Yes, of little faith, Jesus does rebuke him. But a true disciple who, by God's grace, at least for a little while, walked on water. What happens when our little faith encounters a broken and fallen world? Sometimes, by the grace of God, we walk on water. That is, by the grace of God, we are able to do things that we could not possibly do because it is not us but Christ working in us. Now to be clear, Peter is not simply imitating Jesus. Jesus walks on water in his own power. Peter walks on water by the grace of God in Jesus' power. Right? Peter's not another Jesus trying to learn to be more like him so he can have sovereign command over all things. Jesus upholds upholds all things by the word of his own power. Peter cannot and does not walk on the water in his own power, but through his faith in the person of Jesus Christ. But then Peter sees the wind, and he becomes afraid, and he begins to sink. Now Jesus has just commanded his disciples, including Peter, to not be afraid. But Peter looks at the wind, and he's afraid. The same Peter who had boldly stepped out of the boat was now afraid again. What has happened? Well, there's at least three things that are worth us considering about this scene and about these words. First, Peter had walked so close to Jesus that when he began to sink, Jesus could just reach out his hand and grab him. The reason why that's important is we ought not to imagine that if we get in our lives close enough to Jesus, or we've been walking with Jesus long enough, that we can make it on our own even if we look away. I've discovered that sometimes people who have been Christians for a long time have started to think that, you know, I'm a mature Christian. I can handle these problems on my own, thank you very much. Jesus got me started, but now I can take care of it. And that is a reckless thing for us to think. Walking closely to Jesus or walking with Jesus for a long time is no guarantee that we will not stop looking at Jesus in order to focus on our own problems. And when we do that, like Peter, we will begin to sink. Second, Jesus mildly rebukes Peter. Oh you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now we see that Our little faith is not a matter of how big it is. Like a little faith is a thin cord, and a big faith is a thick rope that can hold a lot more weight. The issue in question here is, where are we looking? A mature faith feels its dependence and looks to Jesus more consistently. The little faith goes back and forth from Jesus to all of our problems. Please get this point. As I've already said, I I do talk to older Christians who sometimes imagine that since they have walked with the Lord for a long time, they now have such a strong faith that they can just focus on the problems of their life, and they can handle these problems and challenges by themselves. This passage is reminding us that Christian maturity is marked out by a greater sense of dependence ...upon Jesus, and by keeping the Lord at the pulsating center of our hearts and our thoughts. The central issue of faith is not the size of our faith. It is the object of our gaze. Third, when Peter begins to sink, he panics. But in his panic, he says exactly the right thing. Peter cries out, Lord... Save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Sometimes I think when Christians go off track, um, they're embarrassed to say, Jesus, save me. i got to get kind of back on track first. But you're never going to do that on your own. Peter says the right thing. Jesus, Lord, save me. And Jesus not only corrects Peter for his little faith, but he also rescues him because he is a compassionate Savior. See, every single one of us, people of little faith, no matter how small our faith is, we belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior. Right? And therefore, Jesus is committed to rescuing you, not just once but over and over again until he brings you all the way home. Jesus Christ is not only a glorious Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, Jesus is also a compassionate Savior, so everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As Leon Morris points out, Jesus could have delivered his servant simply by speaking, but Jesus' firm grip must have been very reassuring to the sinking apostle. See, Jesus is not only committed to saving us, he wants us to know that we are secure in the grip of his loving and omnipotent hands. Now, Peter might be a lot wetter than Jesus, but the two of them get together back into the boat. And as they climb into the boat, the wind and the waves die down. And John tells us, the boat which had been in the middle of the sea suddenly makes it to the other side. Verses 34 through 36. And when, it, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. This very briefly narrated scene doesn't give us any details about any of the healings, because that's not the point. But this, this briefly narrated scene rounds out the miracles that have been described in detail, but the emphasis here is entirely on the comprehensiveness of what Jesus has done. They sent around to all that region. They brought to him all who were sick, And all who even touched the fringe of his garment were made well. As Isaac Watt has taught us to sing, he comes to make his blessings known, far as the curse is found. How far? Far as the curse is found. These miracles serve as signposts that Jesus did not come just so the little faith people like you and me would keep being rescued in the midst of a broken and fallen world. Jesus came to set the world to rights and to make all things new. Because of Jesus, a day is coming when your Father will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Because of Jesus, a day is coming when death itself will be completely swallowed up in Christ's victory. Because of Jesus, The earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. And astonishingly, we ourselves, because you are new creations in Christ, are signposts of God's future for this world. We have the awesome privilege of pointing people to our glorious Lord and compassionate Savior, even as we are renewed in his likeness through his word and spirit, and through dedicated times of prayer, while this does require us to focus on Jesus, it does not require us to achieve anything in our own power. It does not even require us to develop heroic faith. It simply requires us to fix our little faith upon our great and glorious Savior. Let me say that again. You are not required to develop heroic faith in order to be useful for God's kingdom. What you and I need to do is to fix our little faith on our glorious Lord and our compassionate Savior. As Paul would later tell the Corinthians, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Let us therefore fix our eyes upon Jesus, knowing that he is enough. Amen.